right, good morning. I feel a special sense of energy this morning. That was a joke. I said to the worship team, I said, we got two things working against us. South Floridians hate cold weather and early, like just those two things. And uh, I mean, if if the temperature starts with a five, I'm like, we're getting carried away, guys. Like if it's it's in the 60s, I'm happy. And I don't know what communist came up with this idea of changing our our clock twice a year, but I'm I'm not. And if it's Benjamin Franklin, don't tell me like I just because it's just it's more than I can handle anyway. Good to see you guys this morning. We're going to continue our study of the parables of Jesus today. And as we do, we come to a story that Jesus is going to tell us to drive home the point. And here's the point. It is that when we come to God in prayer, we need to come humbly. In humility, that's the whole message. That is it right there. In other words, when we come to God in prayer, we need to come as those who understand based on the record of our lives, we do not deserve to be there. We don't. But here's the good news, that through faith in Jesus Christ, what are we? We are washed, we are cleansed, we are atoned for by the blood of the perfect, spotless, innocent Lamb of God. That's how Jesus is introduced to us, which covers over all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our shame. And beyond that even, we're clothed in his righteousness and the merits of his perfect life. Think about that for a minute, because that's the image the Bible uses. It uses the imagery of clothing. It's like we give him all of our sin. He crucifies it, puts it to death and buries it. Then he triumphs over it in resurrection. And oh, by the way, he clothes us. What does clothing do? It covers us over. Praise God, right? He clothes us in his righteousness. So what does that mean, practically speaking? It means that he qualifies us for the presence of God. It means that when God looks at you, if you have faith in Jesus, he sees none of your sin, none of your failure, none of your selfishness, none of your regret, none of those things that not even you want to think about and you for sure don't want him to think about. All of that's gone. And he looks at you, and it's as if you lived an absolutely good as God life. Why? Because you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Do you belong in the presence of God? Well, based on your own merits, absolutely not. Based on the merits of Christ, without a doubt, we're told to come boldly into his presence. Go crawl up into the lap of your heavenly Father and let him embrace you. Speak into his ear, he's all yours. Expect confidently, as we talked about last week, that he not only will hear, but that he will answer. Man, you have every right to be there, but only because of the work of Christ. And that is humbling. When we come to God in prayer, okay, we are to come humbly. Listen to the story. Jesus tells us this. Luke says in Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, he says that Jesus also told this parable. And who is he telling it to? Because there's a little bit of this person in all of us. And for some of us, if we're honest, there's a lot of this person. Some who trusted in themselves that they were what? Righteous. And who as a result of thinking that they were righteous, and here's kind of a clue as to whether or not this is you and how much of this is in you. Okay, what did they do? They held other people. They treated other people with contempt. Jesus is like, if you do that, like you look at other people and you're like, you know, I'm better than you, right? Like, I mean, you might not actually articulate that. And if you do, oh oh man, but really like you think that you behave that way, it becomes your attitude. That's not humble. It doesn't really recognize this whole equation with us and God and how it is that we come into his presence and what qualifies us, where our righteousness comes from, because it doesn't come from my closet or yours. It comes from the closet of the Lord. He's like, here, put this on. It's my free gift to you. I paid for it with my life. 
Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who as a result treated others with contempt. He's like, okay, so we've all got a little of that. All right, here's the story. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. That is to say, to do the very thing that we're talking about today. And then Jesus describes these two guys and they're polar opposites, at least in terms of their outward obedience to the law of God. So one, he says, is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. And one of the problems that we have in interpreting this parable is that most of us at least have enough understanding in the New Testament to know that Jesus identified the Pharisees as the bad guys. They were his enemies. They were always trying to attack him. They were always trying to discredit him. They ultimately are the ones who, you know, put the conspiracy together to put the pressure on Pilate to put Jesus to death. They murdered the Lord in that sense. And we know that So we just assume that everybody in that day and age thought that they were the bad guys. They agreed with Jesus, and that's not true. It's not the case at all. Like the Pharisees were very highly respected. These were revered men. Why? Specifically because of their piety, specifically because of their scrupulous obedience to the law of God. They rigorously adhered to God's law in a way that nobody else in their culture did. And everybody was like kind of in awe about it. I mean, I'm sure they had their critics, but most people were like, whew, those guys... They're next level. Spiritually speaking, the Pharisees were the cream of the crop. They were universally regarded as being righteous. Don't miss that. Okay, tax collectors were the polar opposite. They were the bottom of the barrel. They were universally regarded as being unrighteous. And both of these men come up into the temple to pray at the the same time as the idea. And and the time of day was actually either 9 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I say that because that's the time of the morning and evening sacrifice in the temple. And that's when everybody gathered in the temple courts twice a day to pray. And both men were standing alone. Huge crowd. They isolate themselves. Jesus says that the Pharisee was standing by himself. Why? Because he's so righteous in his own mind that he doesn't want to be touched by any of these spiritual peasants, lest, you know, some of their defilement rub off on him. You get the idea. He's like, make way, people. Get out of my way. The Pharisee who we'll meet in a minute is standing alone too because nobody wants to be touched by him for fear of being defiled. The Pharisee is standing alone, and he's standing there, no doubt, with his eyes lifted up to heavens, with his hands outstretched after the manner of prayer in his day, as if to catch from God, if you will, the answer to the prayer that he is so confident in praying. And listen to what he prays. It says he prayed thus, and the idea here is that he prays this out loud. He shouts it out so the whole crowd can hear it. He's such a likable guy. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. He doesn't say, God, I thank you that even though I'm exactly like other men, I mean, maybe I'm a little better at this and I might be a little better at that, but I'm probably worse at this and I might be worse at that. I mean, I do the law better than that guy and this guy and this guy, but inside I am so prideful that honestly, if you had to weigh it out on a scale, maybe I'd be better if I got rid of the pride and then I lived more like, like he doesn't say, God, I thank you that even though I am like other men, You sent the Lamb of God into the world to pay the penalty for my sin, to wash it all away, that all of my failures are undone, that you've dressed me in a righteousness that is not my own. Praise Jesus, because I don't have much of it. He's like, no, no, no. I feel pretty good about myself. I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then apparently he just starts looking around and calling people out. 
He's like extortioners. They're like, whoa, I thought that conversation was confidential, you know, like unjust. Like, hey, dude, you know, is he talking to me? Is he talking to you? Like adulterers. They're like, oh, nice. Thank you. And then his eyes look over to the eastern gate on purpose. He's looking for someone, a kind of person, a tax collector, because the eastern gate was as far into the temple courts as they were allowed to come. He's like, am I going to get lucky? Is there going to be one of them here at the, at the time of prayer? And sure enough, the best example he could possibly give in the city, he's like, or even like this tax collector. And then he tells us why in his mind he's different. And what's the answer? It's what he does. He's like, I fast twice a week. Okay, well, back then the Jewish people would fast typically once a year. It was on the Day of Atonement. Again, the word atonement means covering. It was the day of the year when they would come up into the temple courts and they would confess their sins for the year. I am fallen. I am broken. I have been imperfect. I understand that there's a problem. There's a price that needs to be paid. I'd rather not pay it. So I am bringing a perfect, spotless, innocent lamb to be sacrificed in my place. The innocent for the guilty. It's all a picture of Jesus. They fasted that day. This guy's like, yeah, I do this twice a week. So I fast twice a week, he says. By the way, I give tithes on all that I get. Okay, so here's what he means by that, because it's more than you're thinking right now. It means he pays tithes, yes, on all of his income, but then also on all that he buys with his already tithed upon income. So let's say, for example, he comes to your house, he washes your car, you give him $10, which is super cheap. I mean, let's be honest. You're happy, and for whatever reason, I guess he's okay with it. He takes his $10 bill, he gives a dollar, he tithes that. Then he goes down to Publix to buy a loaf of bread with the other $9. You're like, nine bucks for a loaf of bread? That's where we're going, people, so just know that. It's coming. It's coming fast. He buys the loaf of bread. Now what does he do with it? He takes 10%, he tithes that. Who does that? Which is his point. He's looking at the crowd. He's going, nobody does that. Just me and, you know, like a few other guys who are dressed like me and yell out their prayers because they're hoping to impress everyone and are just super prideful. So what is he thinking? He's thinking, you know, by virtue of the fact that I'm just honestly, I mean, God, I mean, let's just be honest. I'm just a lot better than all of these people. Surely you're super happy to see me. Like when I come into your presence, you're like, oh, come on in. You're top 10%. You're top 1%. You're top 1% of the 1%. Like if I am grading on a curve here, you for sure have all my attention. Crawl up into my lap. Tell me what you want me to do. And obviously I'm going to do it because you've earned it and I owe you. But you're not happy with these people. They are not in my class. They are not in my category. And the question is, is he right? And the answer is no. And it's a deadly error. What's the problem? He's assuming that that's how God works, and that's not how God works at all. He doesn't look down at humanity and go, well, I don't know, where are you at? You're you're about the top third, you know? This isn't like law school, you know? Are you in the top 20% of your class? Top 21? doesn't work that way. God doesn't compare us to each other. He compares us to himself. Uh-oh. Now we've got a problem. I mean, if you're as perfect as God, no problem. But you're not. I'm not. He's not. Only Jesus is. 
And so this guy is running around and he's comparing his pile of righteousness with the righteousness of everyone else. And he's assuming that that's the way God works when it is not. God's comparing his infinite pile of righteousness with my righteousness and yours. And that changes the equation entirely. And what it should do is it should humble us before the Lord and before other people. I remember when we got married, we moved to the city of Chicago and we went to the Moody Church. I don't know if you guys have heard of the Moody Church, but it's kind of an old historic church there in the city. It was a great church. Uh, It was pastored by a guy at the time named Dr. Erwin Lutzer. I actually Googled him yesterday to find out if he's still the pastor because this is 30 years ago and he just retired two years ago, which kind of freaked me out because I thought this guy was old when we were there, you know, but I was, but I was 27. And when you're 27, anybody over the age of 40, you're wondering, where's your walker? You know, did you leave that? Like, do you have your will? I mean, because you're, you're close to death, right? So I guess he was younger than I thought. But he used this illustration that if, if you're in Chicago, it works. And maybe if you're here, you can imagine. But he's like, you know, what we do is we compare our pile of righteousness with everybody else's. And then we feel good about ourselves. He's like, so let's take the Moody Church. He's like, if you walk out the door and you walk across the street and you stand on the sidewalk and you look at the Moody Church, you know, like to see the roof, you kind of got to tilt your head about this much. Because it's, I don't know, five stories high. Maybe. Maybe. He said, but look down the street. We've got the Sears Tower. It's called the Wilson Tower now. At the time it was built, it was the tallest building in the world. I think it's like the third tallest building in the Western Hemisphere, 23rd tallest building now in the world. Everybody's trying to build the tallest building, I guess. When you stand on the sidewalk across the street from that dude and you try to look at the roof, you're like this. Like, this comes with chiropractic treatment. Like, there's no, you can't see it. It's in the clouds. Like, you, it's up, it's and you're like, I'm not sure where it ends exactly. Like, it is massively different. He said, okay, great. Look at both buildings from outer space. How different do they look from there? Because that's the way that God looks at it. That's the way we ought to look at it. Like, yeah, okay, I don't know. I mean, do I get some things more right than this person? I do, but it's kind of like the difference between here and here from outer space. It's negligible. It shouldn't be cause for pride in me. For judgmentalism is kind of the idea. I mean, if you analyze this guy's claim, just in light of the two greatest commandments in the law of God, that again, this guy is all about, he's all about the law of God. I keep the law. I'm about the law. This is what makes me better than everybody else. I'm, well, what are the two laws? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. The idea being a hundred percent of the time perfectly. How are we doing? How's he doing? What about the second one? Because I think it comes into play. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so what has this guy just done to his neighbors? And particularly the Pharisees. It's like he's called out the extortioners and the unjust and the adulterers. Nobody's happy with him at this point. And then he calls out the tax collector in front of everybody. He humiliates the man. He ridicules the man. He demeans this man. He tears him down. You think if the shoe was on the other foot, that's what he would want to happen to him? He's done anything but love. The irony is that in the prayer... 
in which he's claiming to be righteous, he proves to be unrighteous by violating one of the two greatest commandments of the Lord. And as I said at the beginning, you know, I'm not always sure that we're terribly different than that. I think at times we look at other people and, and you know, they, maybe they've made a mess of their lives and maybe we don't say this, and it's helpful not to, by the way, so we don't maybe say this out loud, but we think to ourselves, well, if they only obeyed the law of God the way that I did, they wouldn't be in this mess. And I just want to pause and say, you know what, that's probably true. I mean, look at every big mess you've made in your life and then compare that to the law of God. And what you'll discover is that inevitably there's some violation of the law of God, either by you or somebody else that has landed you in this mess. And like, if we all did it God's way, the whole world would be so much better, but we don't. And the design of the law of God, in part, like one of its purposes is to keep us out of messes. And when we abate it, we steer clear of a ton of messes. Another purpose, by the way, is to reveal to us the heart of God and his holiness and his perfections. What the true standard really is, it's an expression of God's nature and character. And we don't stand up to it. And the very fact that we see the law and it's like a wet paint sign for us. We've got to touch. Is it still wet? Is it? Oh, it is. Now what are you going to do? You know, the reveals our need for Jesus and drives us to him. But the point is, I, I think that we, we look at other people and we're like, yeah, I'm going to be honest. I'm better than you. That's not what happens when you actually see the Lord. We see that in Isaiah 6, really famous passage. But, you know, Isaiah, who was probably the holiest and most pious man in the land in his day, has this vision of God. And what does he do? Because he doesn't separate himself from all the other people. He identifies with them immediately. He sees the Lord high and exalted, right? On the throne, lifted up, train of his robe filling the temple. He proclaims a prophetic curse upon himself. He says, woe to me, I'm ruined. I didn't know it, but now I do. I've seen the standard and I'm not it. I'm not even close. Luther translated it, I am dissolved. I am literally fracturing. I am, I am dissolving. I'm coming to pieces in the presence of the holiness of God. My goodness, I have seen the king. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips. Words come from the heart. He's talking about his heart. But then he says, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. But their lips are a lot more unclean than mine. Nope. He's like, oh my goodness. We all need forgiveness. So what happens next in the story is that the the camera angle turns to the tax collector. And Jesus says this, he says, but the tax collector standing far off all by himself because nobody wanted to be touched by him. And because, you know, I mean, like he can't come in any closer. He's, He's there in the eastern gate. It's all he's got. He's as close as he can get. Okay, and and notice the contrast. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He doesn't want to be presumptuous here. And far from putting his hands out as if to receive his answer to prayer that, you know, he feels entitled to because he doesn't feel entitled to anything other than judgment. He gets it right. He takes his hand and he beats his breast. It's a sign of humiliation and and, and repentance. And what does he say? He says, God, be merciful, that's the key word, to me, a sinner. And the word merciful here in the original language is used only twice in the New Testament, here and then in another place. And what does it mean there? Atonement. Well, what is that? Because I've mentioned it twice. It's a covering. Okay, but, but a covering by what? 
It's the covering of the guilt. It's the covering of the shame. It's the covering of the sin by an innocent, spotless lamb, by the blood of that lamb, at the expense of the life of that lamb. And again, who is Jesus? Because John the Baptist, again, he introduces him to us as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is to say, the people of the world who come to him and go, man, you know what? I got some stuff that needs to be covered. I got things that need to be taken away. I have things that I, I can't fix. I can't go back. I can't address. And I just, I'd like, and I've seen the Lord and I got a problem. Clothe me in your righteousness. Take all of my failure. Be merciful to me. A sinner, he's saying, God, I, I have violated all your laws. I, and the record of my life, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> Would you in your mercy do for me what I cannot do for myself and what no one else can do for me? Take my sin and failure. Give to me your righteousness. If you don't do that, there's no hope for me. But if you do, then it changes everything. And listen to what Jesus says, because this would have shocked the people of his day. Like they would have been stunned by this. Tax collectors were terrible. They were the worst people possible. And the Pharisees, again, they were the best people possible. Jesus says, he points at the tax collector. He goes, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, okay, went down to his house justified. That is to say, he went down to his house declared righteous by God rather than the other one that you guys think so much of. And then notice what he says at the end, because he reverses the order of the words, and it matters. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He's saying, guys, things are not always the way that they appear, and in fact, they're opposite. It's usually, it's, it's at least in the equation of the gospel, it's the reverse and so if you come strolling into the presence of God and you're thinking you deserve to be there based on the record of your life because you've looked around at everybody else and you're like, well, you know, I mean, I'm, I compare pretty favorably. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I hate to point this out, but if I have to, you're going to get the reverse of what you think you're going to get. But if you come in humility, if you lay it out before the Lord, if you realize that he is the standard and all this comparison stuff falls away, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, right? It is the gift of God, not of works. Why? Paul says it, lest any of us boast. What is boasting? It's an expression of pride. It's the utter opposite of what the gospel produces. God forgives you, then he fills you with his spirit. Ask him, fill me, fill me, Lord. Give me your spirit. Create in me a heart that responds to your love by loving you. And then you go out and in the power of the spirit, motivated, not by I'm trying to prove something to God or to myself or to someone else, but motivated by simple love for the Lord that grows as you grow in your relationship with him. Okay, again, by his power, you grow in your obedience to him. You die more and more unto sin and you live more and more unto righteousness. And yes, you live a more and more and more overtly obedient life to the law of God and also interior-wise. It's the right motive. But you're humble before the Lord because you realize it's all his work. It's not yours.
So when we come to God in prayer, we need to come humbly. As those who understand that based on the record of our lives, we don't deserve to be there. But as those who come through faith in Jesus, who understand, man, I absolutely deserve to be here. I am boldly here. I am confidently here. I am joyfully here. And I am here because of what Jesus did for me. Which, as Ryan said, actually, means you can't mess it up either. If I didn't earn it, I can't lose it. I can't blow it. It's pretty amazing. So I close with three questions, and I just want you to think about them as you prepare your heart to come to the table this morning. The first one is this. Who or what are you looking to for your righteousness? And look for the clues, man, because when you start feeling superior to this person and superior to that person and these people and those people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, tax collectors, yeah, it's probably not a good sign. What's the basis for that? Or if when you pray to the Lord and you don't get exactly what you want, when you want it, how you want it, and, you know, you're kind of ticked about it because you feel like you deserve better, what's the basis for that? Because it has to be, look what I've done, look what I do, look who I am, look at you know, compare me to everybody else. I mean, come on. I deserve better. Oops. Who or what are you looking to for your righteousness? Because the scriptures are calling you to abandon yourself entirely and look entirely and solely to Christ. Secondly, who have you exalted yourself above? And here's what I'm hoping the Spirit does right now. He just gives you a name. I got a name. I know who it is. Not going to share it. Don't share it. You don't have to. What's the name? Who have you exalted yourself above? Like you heard all of this and you're like, it's this guy. I'm better than. Thirdly, how can you humble yourself to exalt that person this week? How can you do that? Look to the Lord, guys. He is your righteousness. He is your joy. He is your peace. He is your hope. He is your life. And he and he alone does not disappoint. And here's what that engenders in your heart. When you really get that joy and peace and love and lots of other things, but humility is for sure one of them. When we come to the Lord. All right. We come humbly. Let me pray for you. Lord, we... We come uh, to you and I pray, God, that you would do business with us this morning. God, that you would speak to the pride in us, that you would, you would relieve us of it, that you would relieve us of the insecurity of it, that you would relieve us of the false hope in it, and that you would plant our hope once again entirely in the perfect one, in the infinitely valuable one, and the wholly reliable one, and the one whose life has already been accepted, his suffering and death already been accepted, his burial defeated, payment received in resurrection. The one who sits on the throne now, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. His name is Jesus, and he so loves his people that he himself entered into this place, that he might be the perfect, spotless, innocent lamb, the one who lays down his life and he takes all takers, all who come to him, receive that life. 
Lord, let that humble us and let that, let that calm us. Let us cease with our striving. Stop trying to prove things to, to you. Stop trying to prove things to ourselves, to others. Sometimes to people long gone. Trying to earn somebody's favor. We have the favor of the Lord. Bought and paid for by Christ. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. Lord, we, we open our hands. We receive it. We receive it. Let us live it. I pray this in Jesus' name.